0: If you haven't been with us before, we're going through the book of Ephesians, and so we're going to jump right back into that today. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and get them out and uh, go to chapter 4, and we're going to look at uh, probably like the biggest chunk that we've ever looked at together in one sitting. And so we have a lot to cover. We're not going to do a a deep dive today, but there are several things in here that I want to point out to you guys. So I want to go ahead and get right after it and, uh, and show you where we're going. We're going to go from uh, verse 7 to verse 16 in Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay because it will be on the screen for you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions? The earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, we're not going to talk about this at all. So, let me just tell you what that means so you're not like wondering the rest of the sermon, like, what does that mean? And why aren't we talking about it? Essentially, what what he's talking about here is when, when Jesus descended to the earth, he's talking about the incarnation, that God became man, that he was born as a baby. That he took on flesh, the form of a servant, so that he could bring us back up to God like we just sung about. And what a beautiful name. We couldn't reach heaven without us, so he brought heaven down. And then he ascended and went back up to heaven after he rose from the dead. And when he ascended, he took a bunch of captives with him. Um, In ancient culture... Whenever uh, a conqueror, an emperor, or general was victorious and they took over another city or a colony or whatever, they always led out, um, they, they, they returned home from that conquered city or territory or whatever with a train of captives behind them. And it was their enemies, and then they paraded through their imp- empire. Let's say it was Rome, they paraded through Rome with all of these captives behind them, and, and everyone cheered, like, Yes, you were victorious. But it wasn't just their enemies that they carried in this train, it was also released prisoners. Prisoners of war that were part of their own people. And so a part of this train were, were the people that they were victorious over and the people that they had liberated. And so all Paul is saying is that when Christ ascended, he essentially led this, this train of captives. He subdued all of the, the um, forces of darkness. Everything that was placed under Christ's feet, the, the angels, the principalities that Paul's talked about in chapter 1 and everyone that was liberated as well. And so he descended, he became a man, he ascended with his train of captives. We're not gonna talk about that again, but now you know what it is, okay? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or philosophy, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly properly. Makes the body grow and builds itself up in love. Now, if you're new to church uh, and you don't know too much about the book of the or the book of Ephesians, let me just give you a quick recap of where we've been for the past few months. And when I say a quick recap, I mean a really, really quick recap because we've been in it for a while. But I do want to catch you up. This book is actually a letter. That was written to an ancient city called Ephesus. Uh, It was written to all of the churches surrounding that city about 62 years after uh, Christ had risen from the dead and ascended back into heaven. Ephesus was a major city in the ancient world. And in many ways, it's a lot like Charlotte is today. Uh, And that's a good thing, and it's a bad thing. For example, it's a good thing in that it was diverse in culture, it was diverse in race, it was a hotbed for the nations of the world, and, and that's awesome. And yet, the negative side of that is that it felt the full weight of racial hostility and tension, and there was a lot of friction between all of these nations and peoples. For example, the Jews... Believed that the Greeks and Romans, who they called Gentiles, were created for no other reason than to fuel the fires of hell. The Greeks believed that any non Greek was their enemy by nature. And the Romans, despite their peace, you know, their Roman peace, the Pax Romana, you remember that from your ancient history, all they did was just try to dominate everyone else, okay? (laughs) So you had Jews who thought everyone was terrible, Greeks who thought everyone was terrible, and Rome who just wanted to squash everyone. So one author said, to the Jews, Gentiles were nothing more than dogs. And to the Gentiles, Jews were nothing more than homicidal enemies of the human race. This is the undercurrent of the city of Ephesus. Racial hostility and tension, much like the city of Charlotte, which if you didn't know, out of the top 50 cities in the United States, we are second to last in racial trust. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. And the reason you need to know this about Ephesus, the reason I'm including that in the recap, is because the entire letter was written by a former racist and Gentile hater named Paul under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And its primary message is that God has a master plan to unite Everything in the entire universe, things in heaven and things on earth, including all of these peoples and races and nations that can't seem to get along with each other. That's the whole point of this letter, and it's going to be done by and in and through his son, Jesus Christ. So in the midst of all the tribal alliances and all of the racial prejudices, Christ came to bring peace and unity. That's the point of the, the letter to the church at Ephesus. What we've seen in the early portions of this letter is that Christ's death on the cross took hostility and replaced it with harmony. Do you feel the need for that in our culture today, in our world today? He took friction and replaced it with friendship. He took bad blood and replaced it with brotherhood. Doesn't doesn't that sound like what Charlotte needs? In other words, God sent his son to die so that he could take everything that separated people, everything that created hostility, and destroy it. Cut it off at the legs. So that he could take these two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, who couldn't hate each other more, and create one new humanity, one new people, one new race, one new family, one new body. And he called this body the church. So now we are his body and Christ is our head. Just look at how Paul has already said this in his letter in chapter 1 verse 22. He put all things under his feet, which again has this like conquering image. When you conquer someone, you step on them and you're like, look look what I just did. You know, that's the idea here. He put all things under his feet And gave him as as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Chapter 2, verse 14 and 16. For he himself is our peace. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, listen to this, one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What great news is that? Chapter 3, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 4-4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, and on and on. It goes, this is who we now are. We are one. No more hostility. The hostility has been crushed by the death of Christ. Now there is peace, harmony, and unity. And so as Tim Keller once put it, a Christian apart from the body is a lot like a soldier without an army. A Christian apart from the body is a lot like a bee without a beehive. It's a lot like a a tuba player without an orchestra. Has anyone ever heard a tuba by itself? I mean, just think about that. There's a reason for that, I think. Um, I've, I don't have an album like with the soloist. <laughs> you know, that's just like a tuba soloist. Like we got violinists, fiddlers, pianists, celloists, no tubas. They need the balance and the harmony of other instruments in order to be effective. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Not just raised to life with Christ. Not just seated in heaven with him in the heavenly places. But joined together in his body and connected to him, he is our head. Guys, when we talk about bodies and heads being connected, uh, let us not think of this in terms of Frankenstein, okay? Like you can't just staple a body to a head and be like, that's, that's a living thing. That's a true organism. That's, fi- that's science fiction, right? You don't staple bodies. you can't go into a department store and find a random head and I choose this one and get a bunch of super glue and no, that's not how it works. Heads and bodies are connected in every way. They're connected to the same life. They're connected to the same blood. They're connected to the same power, the same structure. Heads and bodies go together. You can't have one without The other, which is really interesting that that Jesus would become our head and link himself to us in such a vital way. Maybe that's another sermon. This is important, guys, because it means that being a Christian isn't just about being a good person. It's not about doing the right thing. A lot of people think Christianity is like, oh, I got to clean up my act. I got to stop getting drunk on the weekends. I got to stop doing this or whatever. Like, I got to go to church. I have to live a virtuous life. No, being a Christian is about being a part of his body, connected to the very life and blood and power of God. The Holy Spirit has given us power so that now we have the ability, as we saw a few weeks ago, to be filled with the fullness of God and experience that fullness in a tangible way, not in some weird way like I saw the clouds spell God and that was him talking to me or you know, I was praying that God would give me guidance. I didn't know if I should go right or left and a leaf blew right and I was like, oh, that's God. Like, not in that kind of way, but a tangible, real experience of the presence of God. We have that power because of the Holy Spirit. This is why Christ died for you and me over 2,000 years ago so that we could be invited into the very life of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. One author put it this way, becoming a Christian is not about being made nice. It's about being made new in every way. And that's just a quick recap of where we've been what we've seen these past few months. And I don't usually do recaps. uh, And if you're wondering why I felt the need to do that today, it's because Paul says something really fascinating in the text that we just read, our text today, that sheds light into everything that we've talked about for the last few months. Everything that we saw in chapters 1 through 3 about who we are. and, And I want to show you exactly what I mean. Look back at verse 13 and 14. Hopefully I have it on the screen. I do. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, just stop there because that's stuff that he's been talking about for the last three chapters. And every time he talks about it, he says, we have it. We have the fullness of God. We are a part of his body. We have everything we need in Christ. We lack nothing. He said that over and over and over again, but now he's talking about attaining it and and growing into it and and maturing into it. And listen to what he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. In the first three, three chapters of this letter, Paul has shared over and over and over again the fact that we are one body that we share one spirit, that we've experienced this mystic and vital union with Christ as his body. But now he wants us to know that we have been invited into this experience of God. But as we've been invited, we actually start out as children. We start out as kids. The original Greek word for children here could actually be translated baby or immature. And that would be an insult to us today. <laughs> you want to be called a baby? What do you want to call it immature or a child? Paul says, hey guys, we have all of this stuff, but when he invited us into it, we started out down here as little babies. It's, it's supposed to contrast kind of this childlike immaturity and, and frailty with the stature of a mature, full-grown man. And so he says, I want you to, to grow into mature manhood, to this full stature of Christ, this full knowledge, this full unity. I want you to be there and stop being kids. There are a lot of contrasts between little kids and, and full-grown men, right? You think about it? Uh, for example, children are gullible. You can, tell, you can tell a kid that once a year, a jolly old man in a red suit with a white beard Flies around the globe on a sleigh pulled by reindeer, somehow squeezes down to, uh, in, into chimneys and, and leaves presents for every kid in the entire world. And, and they will believe you, no questions asked. <laughs> They're not gonna ask you about logistics. They're not going to ask you about, like, scientifically, how does that make sense, or even morally, is that right? What about the kids who don't have chimneys? What about the kids who don't have houses? Like, does he give, what about the kids who don't get presents? Is this right? No, they don't ask any of that stuff. They just believe, because that's what kids do. I could give my son a bottle of po- a poison, and be like, this is chocolate milk, and he'd go after that thing with passion. He'd have no idea, just believe me, and he'd do it, right? When I was about two or three years old, I just came across a bottle, I guess it was under a sink or something, I don't know, but it was a bottle of rubbing alcohol, and I thought, this looks edible and good, and so somehow I got that lid open, I don't even know how that's possible, that should be illegal, right? And I I downed that bottle of rubbing alcohol, and it's why I'm, I'm the way I am today, I mean really... Uh, thankfully, my uncle was there and he saved me, but kids are gullible. We don't, we don't know right from wrong. We don't know good from bad. We believe anything anyone tells us, and we just do stuff to our own harm most of the time. You Can't leave us alone, right? And so we need to grow up because we can't think for ourselves. Secondly, ch- children are weak. Children are so weak. I, I can't remember when my daughter Olivia was learning how to walk. It was such a long process. It took her a lot longer than we expected. I think she was like really close to a year, maybe a little older than a year, and that was longer than Nicholas. And, you know, we don't, we, all we were doing was comparing her to him. And when she finally took those first two steps, we cheered like she had just won the Olympics. I mean, it was this massive accomplishment. She's a really fast little girl right now. She's three and a half. But I could beat her when she's at full sprint with a fast power walk because my legs are twice as long as she is tall. Okay, she she's small, she's a little girl, and I'm a full-grown man. And so her body is a lot weaker than mine. That's not saying much about me. I can remember when Nicholas crossed the monkey bars for the first time. I celebrated him like he had just walked on the moon, even though I knew that that was nothing compared to what he's going to do the rest of his life, Lord willing. This is what we do for our kids and their weakness. We celebrate accomplishments that are massive for their immature little bodies, all the while knowing that they're going to do so much more when they're full grown. We kind of dream about that. Oh, I wonder what they're going to do. He can do a flip now. Maybe when he's full grown, he can do a backflip. Like, I wonder what he's going to be like when he's older. Yeah, he can shoot on an eight-foot goal now, but maybe when he's full grown, he can dunk on a 10-foot goal. I can dream, right? Olivia might be able to spin around now without falling sometimes, but maybe when she's full-grown, she'll be able to do it on ice, on ice skates at full speed. Who knows? Because full-grown human beings are way stronger and way more capable than weak little kids. So they need to grow. Finally, children are are naive. In other words, they lack experience. (laughs) They lack experience. They barely scratch the surface of this thing that we call life. Like, my kids' greatest joy is the Disney store and breakfast for dinner and movie night. And and their greatest affliction is a skinned knee and when mom says that they can't wear their dino pants seven days in a row. That's their greatest affliction. They had no idea. They haven't lived yet. They can't even begin to fathom good and bad, all that lies ahead. And so they need to grow up. And this is what's so important for us to see. This is what Paul wants us to see. When Paul says that we start out our new life in Christ as children, he wants us to see that even though we're in the body of Christ, our body is that of a little kid and It's weak and it's fragile and yes, it knows some things, but it doesn't know that much and all we have to do is go up, 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 up and up in our knowledge and experience and understanding of God. Think about all that you know right now of God and think about the rest of your life on this planet leading into eternity is just going to be more and more and more and more. Intimacy, knowledge, experience, fellowship, presence. That's what Paul's talking about here. So even though we know the love of Christ now, our knowledge is that of an unseasoned child. E- even though we've experienced the fullness of God, which Paul says we have, we've experienced the fullness of God in Christ. Even though we've experienced it, it's like our experiences of that of a one year old taking its first steps. Yes, it, it's walking. But it doesn't know what it's like to sprint yet. It doesn't know what it's like to run a marathon yet. It doesn't know what it's like to walk on the moon. Most of us don't, but some do. And so Paul is saying, guys, man, we, we've discovered so much and we, we've been invited into so much, but we need to grow up because there's more of God for us to have and to know and to experience. This is why Paul actually tells us to grow up or build each other up or pursue maturity five times in this passage. Grow up. Don't be content to be a baby the rest of your life. Don't be content to live on milk. Graduate to steak and potatoes and hamburgers. The big question is, how do we grow as the body of Christ? How do we move from infancy and immaturity into adulthood and completion? How do we move from gullibility and and, and naivety to discernment and wisdom? How do we move from weakness to strength? And Paul gives us three ways to grow or, or three means for growth in this text. And I want to unpack them with you in the time we have left. Just so you know where we're going, it's gifting, discipling, and truthing. I'll explain it. Let's look at them together. Gifting is the first one. If you look back at verse 7, you can see what I mean. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led us out of captivity and he gave gifts to men. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. It's really interesting in in the first six verses of chapter 4, all Paul talks about is everything we have in common. You've got one faith, you've got one spirit, one body, one baptism, one Lord, one Savior, one Father. All of these things that we have in common. And now in verse 7, he just shifts everything. And he says that the most important thing about us is actually the thing that makes us different. The most important thing that's needed for us to build up this body so that we achieve maturity is the fact that we are different. There's lots of varieties, lots of kinds. Namely, that Christ has given us all different gifts. So the point here is that we grow up in unity and maturity, not just by having everything in common, but by working together with these different gifts that God has given us. Everyone has a gift, and everyone's gift is important. Everyone's gift is just as important as everyone else's gift. I might be standing in front of you right now preaching, but your gift is just as important as mine. I'm not more important than you just because I'm up here. Everyone has a gift. Everyone's gift is unique too. They're a lot like fingerprints. They're they're what make us special. No two prints, no two gifts are the exact same. Guys, think about it this way. even, Even people who have the gift of preaching and teaching manifest that gift differently. You know, one of my favorite uh, preachers is uh, a guy named Dr. Charles Smith. Dr. Charles Smith African-American. He kind of sings when he preaches because um, that's that style. He preaches everything from memory, never looks at his notes. It's like poetic. It rhymes sometimes. It, it's like beautifully alliterated. He's quoting scripture, never looks at his notes a single time. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. But then another one of my favorite preachers is, is a guy in Raleigh, Durham, J.D. Greer. Who, he stands there with a little folder in his hand and he looks at every single word while he's preaching. They, they, they have the same gift. It's the, it's the gift of preaching and teaching. But they manifest themselves totally different. So even if you have the gift of teaching and you have the gift of teaching or you both have the gift of service and mercy, it's going to look totally different because God has wired us differently. He's given us each our own little fingerprint and our gift is going to look unique. Even people with the same gift will display it differently. So Paul says, this is intentional because it gives everyone a unique and vital role in the body. The body cannot build itself up unless everyone is using the gift that God gave to them. It's like, have you ever seen one of those pictures or, or memes on, on, on Facebook or Instagram with the dude who's got like an entirely jacked upper body? Like so huge. And then like the wimpiest, skinniest legs in the whole world. And, and it's just, it's, it's common knowledge. Like, don't skip leg day or you'll look like this guy. And, and that's kind of what the body's gonna look like. You're not gonna be healthy, you're gonna look weird. You're not gonna function properly if only like a couple arms are lifting weights, you know? And like that chest is really going after it. Gotta get that chest. And then the legs are like, hey, don't forget us, you know? Every single person's got a vital role. Some of you got the gift of faith. The gift of faith constantly pushes you into the unknown. You don't know how God is going to do what he's going to do. You don't know what he's going to do. You don't know how he's going to provide, but you know that he's called you. And so you go, you step, and you pull all of us along with you. Because those of us who don't have the gift of faith struggle to step into the unknown. Some of you have the gift of mercy, and you help remind us that there are people in our church and there are people in our community that need compassion. People who don't have the gift of mercy have a hard time seeing that. Some of you have the gift of administration. You keep the rest of us organized and on schedule and in line. And if we didn't have you, we would crash and burn. (laughs) doesn't matter how much faith we have. Some of you have the gift of evangelism. And so you help keep us all focused on the lost around us say don't get so focused on what's going on in here what about everyone who's dying out there apart from Christ and you help us remember some of you have the gift of discernment and so you help us stay faithful to the word and not get caught up in in trends and and new philosophies some of you have the gift of service and it doesn't matter if you're in front or you're in the back it doesn't matter if anyone sees what you do all you want to do is just help people You want to do whatever the body needs. Guys, no one person is talented enough or gifted enough or strong enough to meet all the needs of this body. Not a single one of us. Even the Apostle Paul didn't have everything it took to live outside of a fully functioning body. Notice, if you look back again at your text, notice how he said, we are infants. (laughs) We need the body to grow up. He wasn't talking about us and them or me and you. Hey, guys, you got, y'all need to grow up. Y'all are little babies. No, he said we so that we will stop being children. The Apostle Paul said without the body of Christ, without everyone else around me, I'm, I'm a child as well. I need other people to help me grow into maturity. So he had to surround himself with people who possessed gifts that he lacked. That's good. That's good for me. This is really important because there's kind of this mythology about pastors. And I'm going to burst all your bubbles, okay? There's a mythology that pastors have all the gifts. And that we can do the ministry by ourselves, you know. There was actually a Stanford study that uh, showed people believe that pastors should work 135.5 hours a week. (laughs) <laughs> which, which, by the way, leaves four hours to like sleep and eat and talk to your wife and you know mow the lawn and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's easy to to die the death of a thousand expectations. Some of the expectations are good and should be met. Some of them are unrealistic and should not. I can remember when I was a college pastor. Um, we started an open gym night. Uh, we we would. We would play basketball on Sunday nights. I think we would start at like eight and we'd end at 10 or something like that. And after we'd play basketball, we'd go to cookout, and we'd hang out till midnight, and we'd just eat and refuel, you know, get all the good nutrients, those greasy hamburgers. It's all it's all good. And we would just hang out and talk, and, and I'd pour into these guys, and it was great. And I'll never forget when Nicholas was born, well, my firstborn, like I stopped staying out till midnight. Okay. <laughs> like you need sleep. You'll know someday if you if you haven't experienced this yet and i'll never forget leaving the gym one night and uh, one of the guys that i discipled, he's like hey man you going to cook out and i was like no and he's like i thought you were our pastor and i was like yeah he's like well i thought i thought you like wanted to spend time with us i'm like i just did <laughs> like now i'm going to sleep <laughs> but i remember feeling so guilty i felt really bad i felt this expectation that Wow, I failed you as a pastor because I'm not gonna go to cookout with you. And there's that expectation there. But the truth is, what I needed more than anything was not to go to cookout till midnight. What I needed was a guy who didn't have a kid waking up every two hours that could go to cookout with him, who had time I didn't have. Did you know time is a gift? That's what I needed more than anything. I didn't need to be everything. I needed help. I needed other body parts. Let me just confess to you right now, um, I have some strengths. I also have weaknesses. And, and so as your pastor, you, you, I mean, you're going to see my weaknesses. And, and let me just be totally honest with you. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing. It's a good thing because you're strong where I'm weak. And like I said, just because I'm up here right now doesn't mean we're not equal. And so you can help me and I can help you. And we can do this thing together and build each other up so that we actually look like Christ and experience his fullness in this body. Does that make sense? I mean, that's a freeing thing. What a, what a gift of God. Hey, I'm going to give you this gift. Just live out of that. Don't worry about what you're not. Live out of this. I've got brothers and sisters for you who can carry the slack in the, in the areas that you lack. What a gift of God. You're not going to find that in a self-help book. Self-help books are pull up your bootstraps and try, 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 strive, 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 be everything, do this, be the man, whatever. Like God's never called us to be that. That's awesome. We need each other. Verse 16 tells us that when every single one of us works together like that. And we carry each other's burdens. And when your weakness is complemented by, by his strength and her strength, and, and we complement each other and we feed off of each other, we will grow. The body's built up by gifting. Secondly, the body's built up by discipling. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, Jesus didn't just give us gifts. But he gave us leaders, he gave us people, and those people were given to us to grow us up into maturity. They were given to us to to equip. And this is what we mean when we talk about discipling, guys. If you've been in, in, in the church world for a while, you know, like, discipleship's a big thing. We were told to go make disciples. And so if a church isn't making disciples, they're not a church, because that's the one thing Jesus told us to do right before he ascended into heaven. But a lot of people have different ideas about what discipleship is. A lot of people think discipleship is uh, I'm going to mentor someone like indefinitely, and they're going to be like my pupil, and I'm going to be the Yoda, and, and they're going to come to me for advice. And anytime they have a question about God or the Bible, I'm going to answer it for them, and, and it's going to be awesome. They're going to be my little tag along for the rest of their lives. Like, that's not discipleship, okay? <laughs> I mean, if you could just imagine a mom doing that to a child. Like, breastfeeding is very important, but not if you're a 10-year-old, right? At some point, it's not good parenting, and it becomes weird and strange behavior. And yet, that's how we view discipleship. It's like, all right, little kid, come along with me. Never grow up. Never learn how to do this stuff on your own. Never know how to talk to God. Never know how to experience his presence. Just stay with me. Attached. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is much more like a master and apprentice. We don't have this stuff nowadays. I mean, in some fields we do. But in the ancient world, there were, there were, apprentices and there were masters. There were master skill men, like a, you know, a blacksmith or whatever. And, and an apprentice would say, I want to be a blacksmith. So I got to find a master. And they would sidle up next to this master blacksmith and they'd learn the trade and they'd try and they'd make mistakes and they'd get better and better and better. And then finally, when they were good enough on their own, they wouldn't stay, they'd leave and they'd go start their own business. I'll never forget the first time my college pastor asked me to preach for the college ministry. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. I preached for like junior hires before. I preached for kids before. This is the first time ever preaching for my peers. I was nervous. I'd never actually written a sermon before. I didn't know how many pages I needed to fill thirty minutes. I was just like, I guess I should have three points. I guess I, sh- I should have an illustration here, whatever. And so I, I wrote out my sermon. I had my three points. I think I talked so fast that the whole thing took fourteen minutes. And and I, I was like, I got to the end of it. I looked up at the clock. I'm like, that took 14. And, and so I was just like, and now we're going to break up into small groups, and you're going to discuss everything that I just told you. And It was super awkward, and and, uh, and it was terrible. And I definitely crashed and burned. But my my pastor, he he didn't give me that opportunity to preach because he thought I was going to do a good job, <laughs> right? He he didn't let me preach for the college ministry because. Uh, he thought I was going to attract more students to the ministry. Or because he needed a break. Now he asked me to preach so that he could help equip me for the work of the ministry. So that he could help prepare me. That's why I let our, our interns preach for me, even though they're much better than I was at their age. That's why I let Jonathan and Ace get up here and preach. Because my job is not to hold on to them because it makes me feel good about myself and important because I got a lot of little apprentices around here. My job is to equip them so that they're ready and I can send them out and they can go do the work of the ministry. That's all of our job for each other. That we would become leaders, pour into the kids, raise them up to be leaders. They pour into kids, they raise them up to be leaders and we build this thing up so that we actually look like Christ. Every believer is a minister. Every believer has a job to do, not just the professionals. Every one of us has a part to play. And my one job as your leader, according to this passage, is to help you do it. And get this, verse 13. says that when leaders do this, when we equip and train everyone in the body to be ministers, the whole body is built up. We actually arrive at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Guys, I don't know about you, but these past couple of months, I've been really wrestling with this fullness of Christ thing. I want more of it. But I can't have more of it without you. You know, nowhere in Scripture is there ever a phrase about a personal relationship with Jesus. Did you know that? We always talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, and I get that. I mean, you have to believe personally. You have to put your faith personally in Jesus. But nowhere in Scripture is there ever described a personal relationship with Jesus. It is always communal. Which means I can't experience this fullness without you. And you can't experience it without me. But I want us to experience. So let's build each other up. Let's minister to each other. The body's built up through gifting. It's built up through discipleship. And finally, through truthing. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and Christ. The combination of truth and love is absolutely vital for our growth as the body of Christ. I love how John Stott put it. He said, truth becomes hard if not softened by love love becomes soft if not strengthened by truth the apostle calls us to hold the two together it's so important for us to hold truth and love together and yet the phrase here is talking so about so much more than mere language mere conversation our translation says, speak the truth in love to each other, but the, the phrase there is actually a participle in the Greek. It literally means truthing in love. Truthing in love is not just speaking in love, it's living what you're speaking. So, so we live truth in love and we speak truth in love. It's a lifestyle, it's not just like confronting sin in a loving way, it's living this hand-in-hand, hand, love and truth lifestyle. This is the most important element of growing the body of Christ. Truth and love. I guess the big question is, how do we know what that looks like? I mean, what, what in the world does it look like to live a life of truth and love being held side by side? And I would say that if you want to know what it looks like to have love and truth held together, look no further than Calvary. Look no further than the cross because it's at the cross that we actually see this beautiful union of truth and love on full display. See, it's at the cross that God spoke the truth about our sin. That it was offensive to him that it was rotten in his sight, that he could not stand its presence. The truth that, yes, God loves the world without distinction, but he hates our sin and he judges sinners is a hard truth to swallow. That was spoken at the cross. He spoke the truth about our condition, that because of our sin, we stood condemned in his presence. He spoke the truth about our desperate need for a Savior, for redemption, for rescue, for forgiveness. And yet his truth was paired with love. It was because of his great love for us that he sent his son not only to expose our sin by his perfection, but die for our sin by his sacrifice. By taking our place on the cross and as a result, taking the punishment we deserve for our sin upon Himself. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve. That's the gospel. So that we who were once condemned could be welcomed as children in His Father's family. That's love. That is love. Guys, Jesus sacrificed glory and position. He he sacrificed his right hand at the Father. That position, the presence of his Father being showered with love from all eternity, he laid that aside so that he could give us his glory and usher us into that presence. So that we could be at the right hand of God. And so that his love could be showered over us for all eternity. That's why Paul says we build each other up with the gospel, speaking truth in love. Where are truthing in love is the gospel. When we live out, when we follow Christ's footsteps, the body is built up. And so if we want to grow up as the body of Christ, that's what we have to grow in. And once we've experienced it, guys, we can't help but share it. Show it and demonstrate it to everyone around us. It's only when we really grasp the gospel in our own lives, so much so that it just seeps into our hearts and it just begins to pour out into our actions, and we begin to truth and love in our lifestyle. It's then and only then that we will attain maturity as the body of Christ. So, Life Church. Let's do that. Let's help each other grow up. Let's use our gifts to serve and build. We need each other. Let's disciple each other and equip each other to be ministers in this body. And most importantly, let's follow in our king's footsteps. Lay down our lives so that we can love each other well. As a result, may we arrive at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I want to know what that is. And experience the knowledge and the intimacy and the fellowship of God like never before. For his glory. Let's pray.